Sometimes in your travels with dairy goats, you meet someone that you think, this is a really cool person. Cameron had one of these experiences when he traveled to Louisiana to judge a show and he met Nate Miller. Join Cameron and me as we have a fun discussion with Nate about his dairy goat passion and how he has turned his love of dairy goats into a thriving business. Welcome, Goat Gabbers, to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. We're so glad to have you here today. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren-Hughes. And I'm the other co-host, Cameron Jodlowski. And we're excited to be uh, joined by a friend of the program now, Louisiana Dairyman himself, Nate Miller. Nate, how are you today? Hey, Cameron, Laura, I'm good. How are y'all? Great. Excellent. Nate, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell the listeners about uh, what you're doing down there, what you're cooking up in Louisiana besides delicious gumbo, uh, and tell us some of your dairy goat history there. Sure. Well, uh, my wife and I own the largest producer processor dairy in Louisiana. There's only four of us in our state, so I guess somebody had to be had to be the biggest, but we, um, <laughs> we have been officially licensed now uh, almost two years. We started off pretty small. About maybe nine years ago, my wife and I wanted to, uh, as we were getting ready to have kids, wanted to um, introduce some some goats into our into our farm. We have uh, 40 acres here, uh, kind of in the toe of Louisiana, about an hour and a half north of New Orleans. And uh, we have cattle, and we had pigs and chickens and horses, and we were getting ready to have kids and wanted to uh, get them on some good uh, some good goat milk. Um, and we got a few uh, from a farm in Texarkana, and then now we have well over, probably close to 200. They're, um, that, they, they became a very quick obsession, as you might, uh, as y'all might uh, understand. <laughs> um, but I have, I, have, I have a little bit of culinary background in the, in the sense that I enjoy cooking. I, I never really enjoyed doing it as a job, um, but I enjoy doing it. I enjoy taking recipes and and different ideas that folks have and and doing playing playing some things with them and changing some things around and so we started playing with different recipes and making yogurt and 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 cheesecakes and chev and feta and just playing around with some things and have really found our niche um in the market uh we do we do a little bit of fluid milk uh but mainly we about 98% of our business um, is moving wholesale product down to New Orleans. We're in about 20 restaurants in New Orleans. We're in two in the Madisonville, Covington area, Mandeville area of the North, what they call the North Shore, north of New Orleans. And we're in uh, two restaurants now in Baton Rouge. And uh, we have done some stuff with uh, LSU football operations. And um, so it's, uh, it has, it has grown very quick. Um, and the uh, the experience for people when you when you produce a good product that's consistent, um, they they continue to come back, and we continue to get bigger. We were uh, seventy seven in milk uh, at the height of our our milking earlier this year, and we'll probably be close to double that uh, next year. We've got probably one hundred and twenty five to about one hundred and forty that will be in milk, and we'll probably use every single drop of it. That is so cool. Uh, Nate, what breeds do you guys have? 
we we started with Nubians. Uh, I was infatuated with the uh, with the with the long ears and just kind of their laid back uh, attitude. I also enjoyed the fact that they'll do they were dual purpose. We had pigs and we had cows, and you know we could we could slaughter an animal um, if we wanted to or or a weather um, and and use the meat. Um, but then we went to Sonnens, and then now we have Alpines as well. Those those two breeds have joined our herd in the last uh, two and a half years, um, and we've continued to grow with those animals as well, getting better genetics. And whether it's the milking side or the show side, um, we actually keep. Um, we've got a group that we raise as breeders and showers, and then the rest of them we breed for milk. Um, but we we have three three purebreds, and then I will play around with uh, some of our animals that, that just don't tend to have, like, phenomenal genetics. I play around with them, and I'll do a sapine or a, or a, a new pine, um, and we do our crosses. And, and if you're familiar with the old uh, old biology class, that there's nothing better than that F1 hybrid bigger uh, in a cross, and, and we have seen that in some of our crosses. Um, those, those animals are, are big. Um, so they're carrying the meat side over from him, but they're also milking like crazy. And, um, we're, we're pretty excited about the, uh, our RF one crosses. Um, and we've, we've shown a few actually in a few shows and done really well with them. Yeah. Let's, let's hold that thought, Nate, on the F1 crosses. Cause I want to talk about that here. Maybe that's my first question out of the gate. I don't really know. Um, but Let's before we get, uh, dive into that. Let's talk about what's happening on our farms, Laura. What's anything happening on your farm? I know you've been doing some traveling recently. Yeah, I got to go back home to Indiana. So shout out to all my Hoosier friends out there. Um, that was fun, and uh, so uh, thank you all who wished me birthday greetings today. Uh, we're recording on on Sunday. This is my birthday and it was fun to, to get some love from our goat gab community. So thank you. But I wanted to tell you one of the first things I did to celebrate my birthday today was went out and took um, some time to ultrasound everybody with my daughters. And I feel confident in saying that uh, we have four AIs that stuck out of the seven that I did. So, I, you know, that's not perfect, but makes me pretty dang happy. And one of those is a Sonnen, which I have never gotten a Sonnen to stick AI. So that made me really excited too. So that was a fun birthday present. That sounds like the best birthday present to me. <laughs> well, it, it's pretty exciting. I think Elizabeth is excited. The Sonnens are her project. So uh, for a girl who's been so gracious and saying, no, mom, it's okay. We'll have Sonnen Alpine crosses again. It's nice. It's nice to be able to say, guess what? At least one of them got settled. So, um, and of course, the best birthday present was having all my kids home for Thanksgiving. But um, there are two other things that I feel like I need to say. And uh, one of them, I really did mean to say something last week. I would like to give a special shout out to our listener, Don George, for being an amazing um Knight in shining armor to me when I was in Tucson. And I guess because I have no shame, I'll give a brief, brief synopsis of how he saved me. Um, 
when you get done with a board of directors meeting really, really late at night, and so you decide to order a pizza, and then the next morning you decide you don't want your room smelling like pizza all day, so you step out of your room wearing bed head that looks like I slept with an egg beater, and um, your night shirt, and that's it, and you sit the pizza box in the hallway for... Um, the housekeeping group to pick up or maybe so you can take it on your way out and put it in a big trash can and you forget and you shut your door. Uh, this hotel, I would have had to have walk a, walked a long way through the lobby at about nine 30 in the morning where there were a bunch of people up and awake people. I don't want to see in my bedheaded <laughs> night shirt. So thank you, Don George for, helping me out and getting helping me to get my room unlocked so I could go back inside and not be totally embarrassed. So now that I just embarrassed myself on Goat Gab, I just wanted to say thank you, Don, very much. I really appreciate you being very chivalrous and taking care of me. So uh, the other thing I'm not going to give quite so much detail on other than to say, um, if you were one of the few gosh, I hope it's few people who saw a very brief Facebook live video yesterday on our Goat Gab um, page. Just say nothing about it and move along. Hopefully it got deleted before anybody saw it, but uh, we'll just go from there. I learned my lesson that Facebook live is not my friend. So that's, you can laugh. Those of you who know, you know. <laughs> so that's it. How about you, Cameron? Yeah, there was only like four people that saw that. And, you know, I feel like half of them were in your car. So um, oh, thank you. <laughs> you're fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, our friend Kim, who was our guest last week, was one of the four that saw it. And, uh, you know, Kim, we can just keep that amongst ourselves. Okay. <laughs> so. Perfect. Well, um, on my farm, um, it's been weird. Um, we've had goats recycle that we thought were bred. Um, in addition to the AIs, we've had some later ones, some earlier ones. It's just been a big like recycle week. Um, and I think after this breeding, we're just going to say, screw it if they're a kid. And if they're a kid, we'll just leave them dry. And if they're not, and if, but if they're an older doe, we'll keep breeding them. But yeah, it's just not been a great week on the recycle front there. That is so frustrating. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, and then um, we cleaned our barn today, which was exciting. I ran the skid steer. I did not hit anything. So that was exciting. Um, I did not permanently damage the barn. Um, so that was a, a win in itself. And um, we just go into the week with a little bit bigger manure pile and um, just a whole uh, clean sheets for the girls. So that that was my excitement there. So Cameron, when you put clean sheets in, do your girls act like they're all babies again and, and get crazy and jump and and rub around and, and be kind of lunatic. Yes. They're, they're always excited for the clean sheets. Yeah. I think that's one of the best things of cleaning the barn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my excitement. Nate, what about you? What's happening on your farm this week? Well, we are continuing to uh, try and push these girls to get as much milk as we can. As y'all know, this is, for the most part, uh, with seasonal breeders, they are trying to wean us, uh, and I am trying to keep them in milk. Uh, (laughs) For the retail side and the wholesale side, 
this is our best time of year. Uh, but from the from the milking side, uh, they tend to try to try to wean us down a little bit and uh, continue to shut down. But we are we're gearing up um, for a really really busy spring. We've we are more than doubling the barn size for our girls um, in January in early January. Uh, we are we're installing a 56 by 60 building that's completely under roof. Um, we we'll have some feed storage and some some areas where they'll eat hay when they come out of the dairy. Um, that's the first thing they'll step off into. Um, so they'll have they'll have good hay in front of their face immediately when they step out of the dairy barn, and then a, a large area for them to uh, to gather when we bring them in, get ready for milk, and uh, we're doing it all on concrete, so that's going to be wonderful. Um, so we can just pull the tractor in and do similar to what you were talking about there with the. Uh, with the skid steer, um, and go make a nice pile, and we move uh, move those shavings along to uh, to folks that that will uh, try to try to repurpose them in their in their pasture throughout the year. But uh, um, so yeah, that's that's what we're doing. We we upgraded uh, some stuff in the dairy from a from a 15 gallon pasteurizer to a 60, oh, wow. and uh, so we're we're really getting ready. Uh, to be to be producing some milk and having somewhere to go with it so it's uh, a lot of um, a lot of anxiety to a degree uh, we haven't seen some we've seen a few animals recycle um, but for the most part they tend to be kind of holding their own and they're fat and pregnant and some of them are still in milk uh, and not really enjoying it but uh, we're gonna we're gonna get them to their 10 months and then uh, and then we'll give them that 60 day break and and uh, and let them just kind of lounge around a little bit and cook cook those babies for us. Very exciting. Wouldn't it be nice if your high retail season and your high wholesale season were like in June so that you could um, uh, make make advantage of that high milk production at that time? Oh, it, it, it would be. Uh, I tell you, though, we produce uh, per pound, we produce more cheese this time of year because of the the uh, the the makeup of the milk changes, as y'all know. Um, and, and so a gallon of milk may, may yield, I'll be super hypothetical here, you know, a pound of cheese in the summer, uh, but, a, but a gallon of milk in the winter may give you two pounds. And I, and I'm being majorly hypothetical there, but, but you, you, if you're familiar with those ratios and what they do, whether it's making soap or, uh, or making cheese, um, that fat content goes goes really high uh in the in the latter part of their lactation and um so it doesn't quite take as much but we still need every drop of it and so my girls are they're uh they get fed really well and so um we're we're, we're putting trying to get all our money's worth out of the food that we're dumping into them so um so yeah well on that note i kind of want to dive into that there on the food side, so you're in Louisiana, you're close to New Orleans, you're about an hour-ish away from New Orleans, you know, there's not a lot of forage production around your way. How, what do you use to feed your goats from a forage perspective? Obviously, there's probably not a lot of that candy alfalfa that we have up here in the Midwest, but what do you use as forage sources? Well, so... Um the great thing about where we are is that we have a very long growing season. Um, and, and being that we're that close to new Orleans, we run the rail, uh, 
within about an hour from me is, is, a, is a major railhead that runs up into the Midwest. Um, and our co-op gets some really, really good products. They don't get everything that we could get other places. Uh, but um, for the most part, they they deal with some, some really good products. Uh, Kentwood, Louisiana, which is about 35 minutes from me, um, used to be the dairy hub. That in Washington Parish, which is where we are. Um, so the Kentwood area and then Washington Parish, where we are located, used to be the dairy capital of the South um, and, and at the very least of, of Louisiana. Um, still a lot of cow dairies here, a lot of big cow dairies that are here. And they get some really good products. They do. We do a mix um, from them. A lot of alfalfa in it, uh, some crimped or rolled oats when we can get them. Um, and we do a dairy pellet, which is about an 18.5%, um, some minerals and other stuff. And that, that's our concentrate diet. Um, the other neat thing about kind of where we're located, um, uh, we will feed alfalfa. Um, I'm a truck driver, actually, by trade. Um, we, I own a, a truck trucking company, and I can pretty much go get whatever I need to on a, on a big truck if I need to, which, which works out really well. Um, but we do have access to alfalfa with a little bit of driving. And uh, actually about two and a half weeks ago, I took a small little trip to, uh, to the panhandle of Florida and picked up a uh, trailer load of, of uh, perennial peanut. And um, the goats absolutely love the peanut hay. Uh, it is very, very, very nutritious. And, um, so they get that and alfalfa all year long while they're in milk. Um, and then along with our concentrate diet, that's, that's how we keep and maintain, uh, a milk and products that are consistent, uh, not only doing the same thing every single time that we do it, but keeping their feed, they don't really get an opportunity to browse. Their browse is from the hay, from the, from the hay bin, um, that we provide to them. So we, they don't get an opportunity to go out and, and browse something and all of a sudden they, they grab some wild onion uh, or some shallots or something that might be growing down in a hollow somewhere. And then all of a sudden your milk and your cheese tastes oniony uh, or garlicky or anything like that. They, they have the same feed all year long and it keeps what we do consistent. Well, that's awesome. I, I did not know that there. And uh, how I know you're from the South is you use the word holler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Love it. So obviously you're providing a good forage there and that's kind of the base for all of your stuff. And I didn't know that. I, I knew you had a trucking company, but that peanut hay, is that pretty readily available in, in the Panhandle of Florida? Um, have you ever done that before? I'm just kind of curious. There, there are a couple farms, uh, literally, I think, two in Louisiana. There might be a few more that I'm familiar with that are doing it. Uh, we tend to get a little bit too much um, rain for peanut hay. Um, and, and, in, and even in Florida, they get a, a little bit of rain, uh, a little bit more rain sometimes. But into the panhandle of Florida, eastern Alabama, and into Georgia is really where you'll get some really good perennial peanuts. Um, and, and heck, uh, where I went into, into Florida's five hours from my house. And, and I, and I say that to some people, again, you have to remember, I drive a truck for a living. And so five hours to me in a, in a, in a truck is nothing. Um, and to other people, it'd be like, man, I'll take a whole day off to do that. And for me, it's, I'll just get my truck and go. Um, 
So, so it's a little bit different uh, because I can do that and, and it, it doesn't necessarily bother me. Um, and uh, when I'm in my 18-wheeler, the neat thing about it is I can sleep in the back of it. So, you know, I've, I've got a sleeper in that truck. And if I go to West Texas to pick up alfalfa, like I can – or even into New Mexico or uh, or into Arizona and pick some up or Oklahoma, I can I can get some there and come home and, uh, and be okay because I can stop and sleep. But uh, for the most part, you're going to find that stuff in, in eastern Alabama, the panhandle area of Florida – um, and then into and then into Georgia. Yeah, that's a that's a uh, area of forage that I know I haven't explored at all because again we don't have those humid temperatures required to grow peanuts. Um, and Laura, you've never probably seen peanut hay either, right? The only time that I've seen peanut hay was when I was at um, a national show a long time ago, and and actually the people I was showing with. Um, they were Hoosiers were trying very hard to find peanut hay just to give their goats something different to eat. So I have seen it, but have never used it. And, and uh, it, it's kind of fascinating to me. And honestly, while five hours is a long trip, I would drive five hours for good hay. So I think most of our listeners might agree with that. (laughs) Sure. Well, well, Cameron, one of the, one of the other things that we do here, I I have a 10 acre field uh, that we cut for Bahia. Uh, during the during the summer we get about two to three cuttings depending on the weather out of that and I'll put up 12 to 1700 bales square bales a year uh, off of those cuttings on um, on our Bahia and that that feeds our buffalo it feeds the it feeds the um, the dry girls it'll feed the, the bucks um, and the and the kids throughout the year the yearlings but then in the winter we scratch it and I'll plant a mixture of wheat, oats, rye, and crimson clover. And with very little uh, application of, uh, of um, nitrogen and, and, and all the other fertilizers that you need, you get it cranked up and then that, that crimson clover will actually add nitrogen to the ground, which forces everything else to grow. We'll get two cuttings off of it, one in, in late, late, late December before we start getting really cold, and then we'll cut it again uh, probably April into May. Um, but the neat thing about crimson clover is it does exactly what it what the name entails. It will turn red, um, and that entire 10-acre field of mine will turn crimson red. Um, so when everything is dead and brown throughout the year, you could you could hover – Hover over our farm, um, or, or take Google Earth, or, or put a uh, put one of them cameras in the air, and you and it's red everywhere. And it actually is. Uh, it's better. We had that tested last year uh, through Texas A and M, and we're throwing about eleven to twelve percent protein, so better than Bermuda. But the neat thing about this, not quite as alpha, it's not quite as, as hot as alfalfa, but the neat thing about this particular product, if you let it dry long enough, 87% TDN. And I have not found a forage that is that high in TDN. And I even called the people at Texas A&M to ask him about it, and, and he was almost blown away and ran it twice to make sure that he didn't catch a section that was – he wanted to run it and make sure that it was legit. Um, but to catch to catch a product that is 
better than Bermuda, but not quite alfalfa. Um, but to give you that high of a TDN, um, I mean, your animals are basically able to utilize the entire product. Um, and we're growing that right here on our, on our farm. It actually is a deer mix, um, that we just add a whole lot more crimson clover to it. Um, I tend to be a little partial to that color in the middle of the winter when everything's <laughs> dreary and, um, uh, we don't get the snow, uh, 60 degrees to 50 is cold here. Um, it's probably mid sixties and I'm walking around with a long sleeve shirt and a, and a beanie on, uh, cause it's cold. <laughs> but, uh, so, but, but in, to be able to do that and produce that on our property, um, and we'll probably get close to 1200 bales off of it. It gives you a really good yield. Um, and you're looking at 10 to 11 bales, square bales, uh, well, no, about, uh, about a thousand an acre, um, which is not a thousand acre, I'm sorry, about a hundred an acre on the square bale side. Um, and that's, that's a really good forage, um, to give our animals to kind of keep them and we can, we can cut back a little bit on our alfalfa, um, and not get them as hot right when they come into milk. Um, and they've, they've done really well on it. We've planted some kind of test plots for the last several years and then this past year, um, was when we did our first set of 10 acres and we did it again back in September and then got some nice rains on it and it's coming up and nice and green while everything else is, is kind of dreary. <laughs> well, that, that sounds great there. Um, my, I think that's just, yeah, yeah. Um, that's awesome there on the forages kind of moving more towards the animal side though. Let's go back to these F1 crosses you're talking about. You talked about the hybrid rigor. We don't see a lot of it in the registered dairy goat community, but I know some of my friends that commercial dairy, we do see a lot of that there. Do you think there's some advantages to the F1 crosses that you're using uh, compared to your purebreds? Well, so we kept, uh, well, to answer that question, I would say yes. Um, And again, I'm 40 going back, looking at some of the things that I learned growing up you know, in school, uh, elementary, middle, and and high school, and even into college, when you start dealing with genetics and and biology, the best animal that you can produce from two purebred animals is that F1 cross. It'll never be better. Um, That is the best that animal will be because it's getting all of that hybrid bigger from the big A, big B, those, those pungent squares and those crosses. What we have found, uh, I kept eight, last, two years ago, we kept eight um, out of probably 60. Um, what it does for me, too, on a farm, and I'm going to step away for just a second, what it, what it does for me as on the farm as well is give me an opportunity to sell homestead animals to people that don't necessarily want purebred. They don't want to pay six, seven, eight, twelve hundred dollars for an animal, they want to keep it in that three, four, five hundred dollar range, um, and get a really good animal um that's gonna milk. You know, the, the people that want homestead animals are either looking for a pet or they're looking for a pet slash something that's gonna give them some milk. And we have tons of them. Um all of our males, we have several folks that come in and buy lots of our of our bucks. Um, so those F1 crosses go somewhere and normally it's for meat. Um, in fact, probably 99% of it has been for meat. Um, we move them and move them very quickly, uh, cause I don't want to feed them. Um, 
but then those those F1s, what I will do, we actually ear tag our F1s, um, and that's just something that no, nothing else on my farm other than our buffalo and the and the cows have ear tags. But that's something that I did, and some people agree or disagree, but that that's the way that it is. I ear tag them, um, and in fact, we've shown them at at shows with ear tags. Uh, but there have been a few that we have put papers on. Uh, as a recorded grade, um, and and have done quite well uh, in in um, in the recorded grade classes, and and stood up against some really nice competition, um, and and we've done really well with them. Anything on the milk production side, you see kind of a, a increased demand for or increased milk production compared to your purebreds, or do you just see more like a moderate size goat that can still milk pretty well, or or what are your well, th- our- well, Cameron, our, our thoughts with that was, uh, you know, for years we were mixing Sonnen milk and Nubian milk and Alpine milk in the milk tank. Um, and what better way to do it than do it naturally? You, you have you have a herd of not everybody that has animal shows, and y'all know that. Um, and I would probably say 10 to 15 percent of my herd is is show quality. Now, they have the genetics to back it up, but they're not necessarily ready to walk into a ring. Um, and for me, at the end of the day, it's, it is all about milk. And when you're mixing it already um, in the milk tank, um, why not mix it genetically and let, them, let, them, let, them, let it kind of take care of itself? You know, the, the Nubian, for the most part, is very similar to what a lot of dairy folks would consider a jersey uh, or a milking shorthorn. They're, they're not going to... Generally speaking, they're not going to throw you a ton of milk, but it's a little bit higher in, in fat um, than than your Sonnen or your Alpine. Those girls are more geared similar to the to the Holstein, um, and and so you're mixing it already in the tank. Why not mix it genetically? And I'll tell you, if I remember correctly, from two years ago when we first started breeding that, I had a Nubian that we wanted to breed. And the Nubian that I really wanted to breed her to was like halfway across the 40-acre side of our farm. And I re- it was probably raining. It was probably 65 degrees, so I was freezing. And I was like, oh, look, there's an alpine or there's a sun in there. And that's the way that I just bred her. And then we were really happy with that with that cross. Um, and what they did uh, actually has a gorgeous udder. Structurally, is not the best animal in the world, but she has a gorgeous udder and milks like a freight train. Um, and so we just started playing with it again the next year and bred a few more and um, have bred quite a few this year. Um, and, and for the most part, it's we have found a really good niche as well when it comes to selling the bucklings, uh, mainly for meat, um, because you still have some meat on their bones. Um that you can do that. And then, and then a lot of the girls will go to mainly the colored ones, but uh, it's funny because half of, I would probably say 90% of my, of my F1 crosses are white or off white. Uh, All of the colored ones, they left a long time ago. If people wanted something with color uh, to go on their farm, they, you know, they wanted the spotted ones or the multicolored ones. And so we just kept the ones that were all white and, and, you know the the Sonnen and the Alpine had the erect ears, the Nubians have the uh, had the droopy ears, and I, I call my F one crosses the half cocks. Their, their ears are half cocked, most of them, 
Um, <laughs> uh, they can hang them low and they can bring them high, but for the most part, they kind of stay about mid midway, like they're trying to land into a into a uh, at an airport. But uh, but they um, they they have been really really good to us. Those animals I have found uh, to a herd have been easier to manage when it comes to parasites. That is one big thing that we deal with down here. We don't get that freeze thaw that you'll get up in the north or the Midwest. Um, and so we deal with parasites constantly. Um, even, even this time of year, uh, we had to worm an animal a couple of days ago and, and then we're in the middle, you know, middle to the end of November and having to, and having to worm. Um, so I have found them to be relatively disease resistant. Um, and not that they can't get anything or get sick, but I have, I have found almost to an animal that I haven't had to do that as often or percentage wise as we do, as we do our, our purebred herd. Very interesting. Do you have like a favorite F1 cross, Nate? Do you like, do you like the Nubian Sonnens the best or the Sonnen Alpines the best or? Uh, I, I don't know that I have any favorites at this moment. We're into, we're into year three. So, um, next year, uh, next year will be our second year of, so the, we're breeding girls now that were born earlier this year and late last year to get our to get our second our second crop uh, of kids on the ground um, are going into our third. Um, I, I don't know with the few that we have that that I that I have developed more you know more of a uh, infatuation with one than the other. Uh, the neat thing we we had a. Uh, a sonnen that we bred through an alpine earlier this year that gave us a solid white kid and one that looked like an alpine. Um, it was really neat. Two sisters popped out and one was, one was a uh, and the other one was solid white. Um, and, uh, and they look almost identical. If you put them next to each other and eliminate color, they look almost identical to each other. Um, I, I don't know. I, I tend to like the half cocked ears, uh, but, um, because those animals don't tend to don't tend to ear the same way when you do the the sapine side the the sun and alpine cross, um, but you're continuing that that uh, you're continuing those genetics with throwing a heck of a lot of milk uh, with that sun and alpine cross. Um, I like going back to the because we do a lot of cheese production. Um, I like the the sapines or I mean the 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 Nubian crosses um, because you're getting a little bit more fat in the milk. But um, I, I don't know that any one of them at, at this moment, ask me a year again in a year and it might be a little bit different, but uh, at this moment, I don't know that I have a, have a, a full fledged answer for that question. Very cool. I just wondered, I, I wondered if over time you would say, okay, this is, this is the cross that I want to keep and this is what I'm going to keep going with. So very good. Well, one of the things we're doing this year with some of those crosses is, is like, for example, if I have five or 10, uh, sign and alpines, I'll actually breed them on a three-way. So the next I'll, I'll breed that animal to a Nubian. Um, and then just to kind of see, like, why the heck not? Like, let me just see what this does. Um, I've shown against some really neat three-way cross animals. Um, in fact, uh, a couple weeks ago at our the Louisiana Dairy Goat show, 
in Ruston, there was there was several three-way crosses, and those animals were absolutely spectacular. I'd hope to produce something like that, but at the end of the day, for me, again, it really is all about milk. And if you're good enough for me to put you in a show ring, I'll do that as well. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Oh, I want to go back to something you said about the F1 crosses there. You talked about uh, parasite resistance, and you just had to worm some goats the other day. Obviously, in Louisiana, it gets hot. And you have to raise your goat, and your goats have to perform. And many times they're hitting that peak lactation during the hot months of the year. Mm -hmm. So, what do you do? Do you do anything like different during those hotter months of the year to continue to bring out like uh, lactation and increase lactation there? So, there's a couple things that we do. Um, we'll, I will mix the. Uh, and it just absolutely went out of my mind. The the blue powder stuff that goes in there. Blue water. light. Blue light. We will do blue light um, to to increase that that production. Uh, well, to increase the consumption. I'm sorry on 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 water. Um, and then the biggest thing that we have noticed, and we would do it too as human beings, is in the middle of the summer we want to get under some shade. Part of what we did with this new part of the barn that we're building in January is give them the ability and a lot of it to get up underneath something to stay cool, but to continue to eat. And we keep it in front of them, and it's good and nutritious, and they want to keep eating it. Um, but at the same time, they're staying cool. Um, we've introduced some fans, um, not only in the dairy, but also in the loafing area where we're moving air um, in the middle of the summer because uh, it gets hot and humid really quick, and uh, and it, and it can ten, it can get a little bit unbearable. And then underneath the the metal roof, then you kind of start to cook underneath it. So if you keep them in some shade and keep them drinking water, um, and and then at the same time continuing to eat, especially roughages, um, that 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 gut is working, um, and you're making that room and work. They're gonna keep they're gonna keep throwing some milk to you. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, that makes sense there. Um, what about on like the disease side? Obviously you are in a different, um, area. You are in a very different climate than Laura and I, what are some of your biggest problems with, uh, your parasite load or, or common problems that you face on the farm just from a disease prevention type thing? Well, par parasites are going to be the, one of the biggest problems. Um, just again, like I was saying earlier with the freeze thaw effect, that we don't really see, um, you'll get that if you if you are free grazing your animals, unless you are unless you're moving pen to pen and you're letting that pen sit, um, which sounds good in theory, and it really is a good practice. Don't get me wrong, but it's not always the best practice on a farm. And what I mean by that is, some people just don't have the room or the ability to do that. Um, they're not in a position of 40 or 60 or 80 acres where they can just spend all this money and pin off this and pin off that. And, and we could delve into tons of different issues when you start talking about fencing and hot fence and everything else. We've had goats go through hot fence before. It's not fun. Um, so it, it's a little bit different than cattle. But um, worms are probably the biggest issue that we deal with here. Um in actually this time of year and even into the spring where we deal with issues a lot is with pneumonia. Um, whether it be silent pneumonia or what I would call true pneumonia, we have days 
for example, um, a day or two ago, it was 30, 35 degrees in the morning, and then, but it was 70 in the evening, in the afternoon, um, and then back down into the 30s or the, the upper upper 40 or lower 40s that following evening, and so that really puts a strain on the, on the goats, and can and we tend to see a lot of pneumonia. We see it a lot in kids as well. Um, our summer kids don't tend to do as well. Um, and that's kind of across the board. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily, uh, you know, regional to us. Uh, but they, the summer kids tend to do not as well. Uh, they just don't thrive as well when they're born in, in the, in the heat of the summer. So we've tried to play around with a few things, uh, last year and this year where we're not kidding in like June, July, August, like, but maybe late August you kind of get over that hump of, of the 100-degree days, and they tend to thrive a little bit better. Those are probably the biggest two. We still do deal with a good bit of coccidia issues because of the humidity and the rain um, that and the heat. That just – that and worms, those, those three are the biggest factors when it comes to worms and, and coccidia. You're just giving them the, the environment to grow and thrive and be everywhere. And, uh, and they are. So do you put your animals, Nate, on a, a, a worming schedule or do you follow Fomancha or, or how, how do you decide how to do that? Because I always wondered in those really hot, humid environments, if you have to take a totally different approach with it than maybe you would where it's cooler or you have more seasonal parasite issues. You do. Uh, we do follow Fomancha. Um, our animals are... Our animals are wormed when they kid, the day that they kid, um, and that's just to start that out with they, they have the best chance going forward at that moment. Our our milking parlor, air, not a parlor, but the, the milking area where the does that are in milk are um, has been walked down and is, is basically solid dirt or concrete. Um, so other than dealing with some coccidia issues, um, they're not necessarily going to get very wormy on you. We've also done some heavy culling, um, and animals that I have to worm two or three times a year are going to find somewhere else to go, um, no matter what their genetics are. Um, in fact, uh, we moved an animal um, about three or four weeks ago who has been back and forth to my farm three different times. We've moved her to a farm in Texas where she was for about a year to 18 months, thrived, never had to be wormed. And this is East Texas, which still tends to be hot and humid. Um, never had to be wormed, put on weight, etc. We get her back here. She kids. We worm her. And I had to worm her three times this summer, and she went back to Texas. Um, obviously not the best environment for her, whether it was the dairy or, you know, because some animals just don't necessarily thrive in that environment, um, whether it's the dairy side or the heat or the, the, the uh, humidity, etc., but um, I, I don't tend to bl- – we have never been in a position where we blanket worm. Um, I don't find, especially in an area where we are, you're going to lose a lot of resistance uh, if you just go in and just blanket worm animals. There are several animals here on our property that I have never wormed. Um, they were wormed before we got them, um, or, or they got it from from their mom kind of in that whole thing with the colostrum and that kind of stuff but we pull our kids so they kind of get pulled colostrum but uh 
they'll get some of that from there, but there's animals that we have not had to worm. Um, and those are the animals that I want to keep, uh, no matter what the genetics are. I can always move an animal to another farm and buy kids back or work that into a contract where, you know, I'll breed this animal this way, but I'd like to try a kid back. And, but we found two, to a degree, um, that those animals, I, I have had moms that we have continued to have to worm and we've moved them along and sometimes their kids are the same way. And that tends to kind of be a pedigree thing, um, that just kind of follows them, uh, kind of a genetic thing. And we've lost some animals, uh, that you tend to kind of look back at like, what's the common denominator here? And, oh, it's this buck or it's this doe. And you tend to go back and see that over the course of say seven or eight or nine years, it's like, man, I've lost four animals and they're all from the same sire. Are they all? And those to me aren't necessarily just coincidences. I don't follow them scientifically enough to, you know, to beat every bush and see exactly what's happening there. But, but that stuff tends to stick out to you that it's all from the same doe or, this is her kid and, uh, or that's all from the same sire. But, uh, um, that's, that's, that's kind of where we are. I would, I would say heavy calling, uh, keeps us in a position to not have to do that. Um, and then we worm based off of Hamacha and, and kind of, um, you know, what the animal looks like. You can tell if you, if you're around your animals enough, you can tell that they're off, whether they're off feed or, or you start to see, um, you start to see a little bit more bone than you, than you saw the day before. And then you walk over and check their eyelids and that's the fastest and easiest way to check them. Um, we do have microscopes and can check, can check, uh, if you wanted to do a fecal float, you can do that. Uh, not everybody can, but, but, uh, we, we put ourselves in a position several years ago to be able to do it. And, um, I don't do it as much anymore. I trust my Famacha. Um, and it, and it has, it has tend to work out pretty well for me. Um, so we don't quite do as many floats as we used to, but, uh, but, but doing a float will really kind of reaffirm if you're not quite, uh, sure on what you're reading on the Famacha side, you can, you can do a float or have a vet do it. And, uh, and that can reaffirm your, uh, reaffirm what you're seeing on yourself by, by having someone else see it and, and, and reaffirm it. I just love that. I love, I love the picture that my mind is grabbing of a really well-run herd where, you know, you're able to pay attention to that, but most importantly, you kind of let uh, the animals do their thing and uh, manage them as they need it. I think that's just, that's just really a holistic approach to herd health that I appreciate. Sure. Well, and we, and we still, I will tell you, we still, we still miss things. Uh, there's animals, you know, we have lost animals here, even with seeing them every day and feeding them every day. You know, they're they're animals, and they're going to do things. Uh, <laughs> they're going to do. I mean, y'all, you probably each one of you probably has in the back of your mind. Oh, I remember this doe or that buck, and 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 uh, you know, it, they're animals, and they're going to do things that are unpredictable, or, or stuff's going to happen, and no matter what we do for them, or put them in the position to be the best they can be, sometimes crap happens and and it does um we we've had some pretty crazy things happen that when you have five you don't really see when you have 100 or 200 you start to see a lot of stuff that you you read about in books or you heard from 
from John Smith over there at the show of this happening. When you have 200 of them, you start to see things. But even with, I mean, we have a doe right now that we moved a couple days ago to, to, to a quarantine sick pen that I see these animals every day. And we feed them every day. And you just kind of notice, you'll bring hay out to them and she's standing off. And you gawk over and check for matcha. Like, well, that's not really quite where I want it to be. So let me just go ahead and move you. And then we're here a week and a half later and she's still in the sick pen. So there's, you still do and will miss things. And, and sometimes in our area, you miss sucker, you miss something by a day. And, and it could be the difference between a dead animal um, and an animal that will, will give you kids and will milk for you the next year. And it still happens. I mean, no matter how well run you, you run a farm, everyone deals with, everyone deals with sickness and everyone deals with death. Uh, you know, you, I will tell you, you never see on my Facebook post when I, when I post about our farm and our animals that we lost one to worms and you never, you'll never see that. You'll never see posts about that. You always see people post about the good stuff that they do. And that's great. And we do that as well, but I can tell you it happens on everyone's farm. Um, and no matter how well you run a place, uh, um, you know, we're not just some panacea here that it's, it's run great. And we, and we never have issues with dead animals or, or worms or coccidia and stuff like that. It, it happens here just like it happens anywhere else for sure. I'd like to know a little bit more about the products that you make. And Cameron, when Cameron told me that he'd like to have you on as a guest on our podcast, I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. He talked about your cheesecakes. So I'd like to know a little bit more about your product line. Sure, sure. Well, we started uh, we started fairly simple and fairly easy um, several years ago, actually before we well before we got licensed um and we just started kind of making things we started with the probably the easiest thing to make and that's chev uh the goat version of cream cheese so to speak um very similar to it um and then we delved into some feta um i always just because i like tackling things that are harder i wanted to play around with some blue cheeses because they're a lot more difficult um than just, you know, putting something and hanging it in a bag and, and then it's your fresh cheese and you can eat it a day or two later. Let's see what this thing tastes like six, you know, two or three months later and see if it's any good. Um, off of our feta line, we do two different marinated fetas. We do a Greek, um, we do a Greek marinated feta. We also do a Southern heat, which is uh, infused with Tabasco. Uh, which what better thing to represent our state than Tabasco? Everybody knows Tabasco. Um, and if you like this little bit of heat but can still taste some really good cheese behind it, that's where that goes from. Uh, we make a yogurt as well, which is just a, a plain Greek yogurt. It's really thick. Um, and we do a little bit of milk as well. Our cheesecakes are pretty much what we're known for. And it's kind of crazy because my wife and I really never wanted to be known for our cheesecakes. But to say that they are life-changing is probably not even the best word because they truly are life-changing. I would agree. So are these flavored cheesecakes or New York-style cheesecakes? or It is a chef cheesecake. So the, um, the ingredients that go into the cheesecake for the most part are from right here on our farm. Um, we, the chef that goes into them um, versus if you're familiar with making cheesecakes 
and I'll let other people kind of delve into that. That's what Google's for. Um, Cause I'm not going to give too many hints away, but um, we make <laughs> most of the stuff that goes into our cheesecakes. Um, and, uh, but it is, it is a very dense, uh, but, um, but decadent cheesecake. Uh, we have made different flavors. So our normal general cheesecake is going to be a graham cracker crust and it's going to be plain. Um, probably one of my favorite cheesecakes to make, despite the fact that I absolutely hate lemons, um, is our, is our lemon cheesecake. Um, because we also make the curd that goes on top of it and I can eat this stuff by the spoon while I'm making it. Um, it is that good. And I hate lemons. Um, and so to be in a position of making a cheesecake that other people will enjoy and then you're like, man, this stuff is actually really good. Um, it is is pretty neat as well. We do a chocolate graham cracker. We've done Oreo, uh, crust before, um, and those are more kind of geared towards, for the most part, to kids. Um, but you're you're talking about a cheesecake that's not it's not your Sara Lee for five or six seven dollars at the grocery store. You've got well over a pound worth of of goat cheese in these cheesecakes. Um, we make a nine and we make a six inch. Um, and even if you bought stuff from the store and did it yourself, you'll you'll find pretty quickly. That you're talking about a thirty, forty, fifty dollar cheesecake with just the stuff that you put in it, and that's without even having cooked it and, and taken it out and made sure that it didn't crack on you. Or we hand make every single one of them, from the crust to the cheese, um, and then we hand mix them all together. And they're done pre-order, um, and so normally we've got about a week turnaround, so to speak, on it when we know that they're coming up. Uh, this is our busiest time of the year. Um, and so it's, uh, it can be frustrating to when they're not given, when our girls aren't giving us milk that we need chef for our cheesecakes, but, uh, we have, we've made it through. We did, uh, 87 of them between Thanksgiving and Christmas last year. And we're, we'll probably be well over that. And we'll probably, we'll probably break over a hundred this year. Um, and we ship all across the country. Um, we can't necessarily control shipping, but, uh, but we do ship. That sounds amazing. And as a lemon lover, oh my gosh, my mouth is just watering. Thinking about lemon curd on an amazing cheesecake. So um, Cameron says that they are amazing. The, at, uh, it pairs well with their caramel, their cayeta, uh, whatever you say that, cayeta, whatever you say that. Yeah. Yes, that the caramel sauce there, and it also pairs well with the Michelob Ultra. I can confirm that. Oh, oh, touche. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I, I will tell you, there has not been, uh, there has not been very many things that I, I have that we have played around with or put on them um, that it hasn't been just absolutely amazing. The the whether it's whether it's like a Satsuma jam. Um, or even like a, like a fig jam or a compote. Uh, we do a lot of stuff with blueberries. Uh, the lemon one just kind of speaks for itself. Uh, we did some Facebook posts the other day about those. Um, oh heck, we've seen, um, strawberries for sure. Any, anything berry wise or fruit wise that you throw on that just tends to be really good. The cajeta, we make the cajeta by hand. 
um, as well. Um, we tend to do a really, really nice, thick, dark cajeta, very similar to our gumbo roux. Uh, lots of hours of stirring. Um, but, uh, and that stuff is, is absolutely amazing as well. And uh, sugar-free, I might add. Um, if you believe that, I have some property I can sell you too. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the cajeta is, the cajeta is all handmade as well. But we haven't found very many things that, uh, that you can't put on top of it that, that, uh, that makes it any better. But, but even playing by itself, um, our, our kids beg to lick the bowls, um, when we're making cheesecake. And uh, what better way than to get them to eat some raw, some raw cheesecake mix? Um, nothing better for the gut. But um, heck, they're raised on a farm, so <clears throat> mud and mud and raw eggs and everything else. Nothing, nothing better for a kid. All right, a uh, couple more questions here we got for you, Nate. Um, my first question is about your wholesale market. So, or my next question is about your wholesale market. There, you've talked to me about kind of how you are the cheese, the goat cheese kingpin of New Orleans. Talk to me about your wholesale market and what you're doing there with that. Sure. So we move about 98% of what we do, like I said earlier, goes, goes to New Orleans. We move all that product to a company called St. James Cheese Company, one of the largest distributors of cheese in the southeast, if not in Louisiana. Um. They are our go-to for moving it into restaurants, and that's where we've been into uh, several restaurants, uh, Commander's Palace, um, Chifuncta's in Madisonville, um, some of the lines that run that, that Emerald's Legacy owns, um, and uh, some really, really, really nice uh, restaurants that we've worked with that I never even have to go to. Um, I've talked to a few of these people on the phone, um, but these places, they want fresh and they want local, um, and they will spend money to get a product, not only that's not necessarily that is from Louisiana, that just kind of makes it a perk, um, that, you know, that we're from an hour and a half away. Um, a lot of these folks, I, I have met them after the fact. Um, we've gone to their place or, or they have come to our farm because they want to see it. Um, it lets them put a face with a name and a farm and they can go back and tell their customers, um, about, Hey, look, I've seen this guy's place or I've seen what they're doing, their animals. And, and, um, that we don't, we don't sell at farmer's markets. I've never been to a farmer's market and sold our product. I don't have the time to do it. Um, we're as busy as we are. And there are some times that I can't fill my wholesale market. That's how busy we are. Um, and on top of that, my wife has a full-time job and I drive a truck for a living and we have some phenomenal workers, but, uh, they, um, that's, that's mainly what we do. Uh, we do have a few retail folks and we do sell some stuff, uh, when people order it, whether it's through direct message and, and Facebook or, or off of our website. I mean, we'll ship that way or I will meet people in and around town or if I'm on the road, I'll bring it with me. Um, but probably 98% of what we do goes wholesale and then they divvy it from there and it goes into restaurants um, and on people's plates. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're only selling the Chev. You're not doing any flavored cheeses in your wholesales, correct? Um, 
Well, so we do wholesale our um, we do wholesale our marinated fetas. Okay. Um, but everything that other than the marinated feta, everything that we sell is plain. We sell a plain yogurt, we sell plain feta, and we sell a plain chev. Uh, we kind of played around with some different flavored chevs. Um, and I would say in like a year and a half sold like three helpings of it or, or three eight ounce containers of it retail to people who had ordered it off, you know, off, off of our website. Um, and that's through just sending us a message on our website. It's not even really set up to, to be like a, like a sales market on our website, uh, or like a sales page. Um, I have found I would rather people taste taste it raw, so to speak, for lack of a better term. I want them to taste it in the raw, and then they can add to it if they would like. Um, for for me, for the most part, what we've liked to do with our cheese is it. Uh, and, and, a, and cheese for me kind of tells a story, and. Why, other than our marinated fetas, which those are there for a reason, and they're really good, but they're but they're kind of there for a reason. That that cheese, when it's in its uh, not raw, raw's probably not the best word, but 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 when it's in its most raw state, uh, and it's just salt, and and the cheese, that cheese is telling our farm story, because I could go a hundred miles away and make the same cheese on a different farm, and it would taste completely different, um, whether it was the feed that we were feeding or the hay um, or even just the, the management on the farm um, to the animals, um, uh, to the animals, even um, our, our cheese tells our story of what our farm is. And uh, I, I want people to experience that. And if they want to add some more salt to it or uh, put something in it, then they can. Uh, I would just rather them do that on their own, on their own, if that makes sense, uh, versus me making 55 different flavors of something. Um, that's the same thing at the end of the day, if they want to add something to it, they can. Uh, but, but pretty much what we do is move, we move plain stuff. And, and what it does as well is it lets the chefs, they're, they're able to kind of take a product that we give them and, and make some ownership of it themselves. They can take they can take that feta and put it, whether it's on a salad or they can whip it and put it into a, uh, into like a mousse, um, and put it kind of a topping on top of fish or, um, the chef, they'll, we have a lot of bakers that will put it in, in different products and they're adding some things to it here and there, but they're taking that base product, um, and just kind of doing their own artistic, uh, ownership of it and that's really kind of where we wanted to be with our chefs um is is yes they're buying local and they're buying fresh and 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 all the stuff that that entails but at the same time let them take something and make it better if that's the best way to put it um they have their they have that artistic license to then take it and bring it a step ahead uh, or a step better and and it's worked really well for us i mean to the point that we get to this time of year and we can't, I can't even fill what places need for us. We're, we're trying to fill it as quick as we can. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've, we've, we've gone into getting more animals for next year and, and, uh, producing more next year. But, uh, yeah, probably 90, 95% of what we do is all, is all, um, is all unflavored. And like I said, in the, in the rawest version, 
of, of a finished cheese that we can. Our blues are a little different. <coughs> Excuse me. We, um, I play around a little bit with the blues. Um, most of our blue cheeses are, are 100% goat milk. Uh, with the water buffalo that we, that we picked up earlier this year, um, I've been playing with some blends. Um, we do a 50-50 blend uh, with a water buffalo milk and goat milk. Uh, that is absolutely amazing. Um, but we also do some things with our blues that no one else in the country is doing. Um, I don't wash our rinds. We let them just kind of take off. Um, they they kind of create their own ecosystem, so to speak. And so we'll have some that turn, I mean, solid blue. Uh, and we'll have some that will turn different colors, whether it's white, a little mixture of the white and the and the blue from the rock tree. Um, and and we have we have an unwashed rind, um, and that's kind of our our artistic take on it. Um, I let our rinds just take off and they go where they go. Um, the cheese for the most part has been relatively consistent. Um, as we've made them, we don't make a whole lot of blues because I have to have the milk to bake them. Um, so we, we probably make 20 or 30 a year. Um, hopefully next year we'll get into making some more, but, uh, but they have been really, they have done really well for us. Uh, and so, uh, from the artistic side, it's, it, it's really, it's really been neat to watch those things grow as well, literally and figuratively, because uh, I think people like to see just something different. Most of the blue cheeses that you're going to buy in the, in the grocery store or even at a cheese mart, um, they're washed. And they're going to be solid white or off-white on the rind, and then the blue and, and the, is, is on the inside. We kind of let it just take over and do its thing. So I've seen water buffalo, pictures of water buffalo. I have never seen one in person. So how are they to milk? They are extremely similar to a cow. Um, they're going to have four teats just like a cow does. Um, the current setup that we have, I've got six females um, and one bull. And um, they came, the bull came from a uh, another girl here in, in Louisiana who is working on doing some stuff with some gelato uh, on her dairy as she tries to get licensed and so forth. Um, I We have hand milked those animals um, on her dairy. Um, my girls, we have not milked them yet. They are all right around two years old. Um, so they, they are all bred and they carry an 11-month gestation. Uh, God help them. Um, <laughs> but they... Uh, they um, will kid or will calve. I'm sorry. Uh, between September and December of next year, um, they kid kind of in the similar. When when we're losing milk on the goat side, they will they will calve and come into milk. Uh, but they are extremely similar to cattle um, as far as their their udder structure and and how they and how they milk. Um, really 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 high fat content um 12 to 18 percent um for the most part your your water buffalo milk will run you 40 to 65 dollars a gallon extremely nutritious um and has a whole heck of a lot of fat in it um and if you've watched some calves grow up on it um their calves uh they get big really quick off of their mom's milk 
Um, it does some really neat stuff when you start making cheese with it. Um, you know, I gave earlier in our conversation, I was telling you about the one gallon to one pound of cheese kind of thing. When I have mixed it and made blues, um, normally, hypothetically, I'd use a five-gallon batch to make blues, to make a blue. Um, and we did a five-gallon batch that was like two and a half gallons of goat milk to two and a half gallons of of uh, buffalo milk to make one wheel of blue cheese and we made like two wheels of blue cheese and so we had to kind of play around with our numbers a little bit to get back down to kind of a, a, diff, a different consistency to where we could keep that 50 50 but then i had to just go grab another cheese mold um to make it to where if i was going to make say two batches of blues i was going to make four wheels uh, instead of having like a wheel and a half, um, you tend to get a really neat, um, you know, like I said earlier, when you're talk, talking about like a gallon of milk to a pound of cheese, it's like a gallon of milk to three pounds of cheese. Um, their milk composition is amazing. Uh, and what it does, and, it, and it's really neat too, because it's very sweet without being sugary. Um, and when you hand milk them, now we milk, we will milk our animals on a machine, but, but when you hand milk them, it almost is like a lotion on your hands. I have, when I, when I milked with our friend and, and, um, outside the Baton Rouge area, St. Francisville, when we hand milk those animals, you then wash your hands with like Dawn and then you can still smell the milk fat on your hands. And, and this is after you've already washed them. It's almost like lotion and, um, amazing composition of what that milk does. Um, whether it's for drinking or, or for cheese making. Um, and then that's where you get your, your true Buffalo mozzarella. Uh, but I have found it's really neat when you start playing with it, with the blue cheeses, because it keeps those blues extremely creamy. Um, when you cut into that thing in Louisiana, we can age, we have to age at least 60 days, uh, with a raw milk cheese. Um, you have to age 60 days in Louisiana. And so, um, all of my blues are all raw. Um, we do raw goat milk and we do raw buffalo milk and then age them for 60 days. And they are extremely creamy. Um, uh, not quite to the point of like sour cream or, or cream cheese, uh, but they still stand up um, when you cut them. They're firm enough for you to cut, um, but nice enough for you to enjoy it. Like a, like it's a little bit more firm than a than a than a cream cheese uh, in a wheel fashion. And it's uh, but man, the composition of that of that milk is 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 quite amazing. So most of the blue cheese that I'm familiar with around here, of course, is cow milk cheese. And it's very crumbly. So this sounds this sounds like that you could it's really versatile as compared to a crumbly cow milk blue. It is. And and you can age ours a little longer or um, put it in the fridge and, and let some of the moisture come out of it naturally um, and, and crumble it. Um, or you can enjoy it on a charcuterie board uh, where then you can cut it um, with a with a with a knife and, and put it on a, a cracker. Um, my favorite thing to do with our blue cheese is to put it on ribeyes, um, slice it really <laughs> nice and thin and slice no. it on a ribeye. Um, 
and and that has that just makes a, an amazing flavor. Um, and the funny thing is, is as I've continued to make them, I, I love blue cheese, but I have not always been a very strong and pungent blue cheese fan. Um, but as we continue to make them and they continue to kind of evolve on their own at, on our farm, I have grown to, to like and be more accustomed to the really strong pungent ones. Excuse me, and we and we have found we have found customers that like it crazy, ridiculously pungent, and some that don't. And and it's funny, I can make four wheels on a weekend, and three out of four of them may be decently pungent, and one of them is just absolutely ridiculous, and we'll sell every one of them. Um, we have we have customers that will have customers that will call and we'll talk to them like, do you want a really pungent blue? No, we want this one, and they'll and we'll move it, or we'll move some that's and some will try both. Uh, here around Thanksgiving, we moved a lot of our blues, and most of them were moved in pairs. They wanted a pound of of really pungent blue, and they wanted a pound of of kind of more of the mild side, and. Um, and just give their their family and friends the ability to taste, you know, two different ones, and then at the same time we're local and uh, and it and it's moved that way. But uh, <clears throat> I've I've grown more accustomed to trying some of the because I try everything that we cut. I I pretty much, especially with my blues, I will try before we send it somewhere. Um, so when I cut it and start and start uh, start breaking it down from the wheel itself, which are about five pound wheels. Um, I'll normally cut off a big hunk of it and, 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 uh, and eat it myself. And I've, I've grown to be a little bit more, uh, accepting of some of that stronger flavor. Um, it's really neat when you try them, whether it's just the straight goat milk blues or the, uh, or the blends. But, uh, and again, going back to the stuff with the rinds, you don't, most of those cheeses you're going to see at a cheese shop are going to be white or off white because they've been, they have used their brine a saltwater brine to wash them to restrict that bacterial growth on the outside of the rind. We, we play around with it and let, we just let the bacteria do all kind of different stuff. And it, and it's neat. It'll make kind of a modeling color on the outside of the cheeses. And I eat the rind. Uh, some people don't, you can eat around it. Uh, but it really is neat. The, the whole ecosystem of the, um, uh, of this wheel is is really really neat uh, when you just kind of let them take off and do what they're what they're supposed to do in the in the cheese cave. Wow, that is a lot of information on blue cheeses. I never thought I would learn that much from a podcast episode, but that's incredible. And I know you are very passionate about your blue cheeses, uh, Nate. And I'm glad you even got there without even me asking that. I'm out of questions, but I know Laura's got one last one. So I think that many of us who have dairy goats have always had the idea that we'd love to do that full time, or we'd love that to be a major income bringer for us. And you're kind of living that dream for many of us. So I guess what I want to ask you is, you know, yes, I realize that you and your wife both also have other jobs, but is this what you thought it was going to be when you decided to jump into it? And if you were going to ask, if you were going to give yourself advice, if you could turn around and, and give your beginning self advice, is there anything in particular you'd like to tell yourself? 
Sure. Well, um, we have tried over the last several years uh, and here recently to to kind of mentor some folks in our area who who want to dairy. Um, having it as a full time job is very expensive. Um, I, I would say to to give some advice, uh, dairying and doing what we do is extremely expensive. We have, and and that's one of the big reasons why we've continued to get bigger and have more animals. You either do it really, really, really small, or you have to go big. There really is not an in-between. That's one of the big things that we've learned um, because you don't quite make enough money for it to be profitable uh, and for the IRS to not view it as a hobby um, and, and then shut your shut your uh, your tax exemptions and different things like that down if it becomes a hobby. Um, you don't quite make enough money, uh, for it to be profitable and, and so forth with just a few small animals. Um, and then you're only making a little bit of product. I will tell you when we started, we knew, we knew, I don't know that we, that we quite thought that we were going to hit lightning in a bottle the way that we did. Um, we knew just by testing some of our products out and sampling them out, uh, that we made stuff that was good uh and edible and that people would buy then i think once people kind of got the we have dealt with a lot of folks that are like man i've tried goat cheese years ago and it you know i felt like i was licking a goat like that i think you you get that (laughs) group of your customers who think that all goat cheese just tastes like you're licking a buck um and our, our goat owners will know what that tastes like and what it smells like um but not, I mean, and we have tried goat cheese that's that way, and there are people that like it. Um, what we try to do, and and what I think we have done is is with the consistency of our feed, um, and what we feed our animals to to have consistent milk and cheese throughout the year, is to put ourselves in a position, even even with the restaurants and whether it's retail that we that we move to people, is that they can try stuff, um, and it not it not be appalling to them. Like they can, they can still taste it. Um, you know, and, and there are, there are cheeses for those folks who like the, um, the milk and the, and the cheese that, that tastes like they're licking a buck. Um, and then that's perfectly fine. That's just not what we do. Um, as far as advice, uh, it's a lot more into it than a lot of people think. Um, my wife and I stay busy. Um, I wake up in the morning and I'm running out of daylight. Um, and we wake up fairly early in the morning. We start milking at five. Um, and so this time of year it's dark. Uh, and I wake up and it's dark and we're running out of daylight. Probably the best bit of advice I would say is to win the lottery before you start a dairy. Uh, you'll be working really hard to try to catch up. Uh, pretty quickly um because if you get big really quick um you have to then feed animals and house them and then all that it just dominoes very quickly on you um my wife and i uh have actually done everything that we have done on our property ourselves Uh, so there's a lot of pride in that uh 
um, we've saved and done things when we could afford it instead of going and get, I think a lot of your, especially your big cow dairies tend to get very, very, very in the red very quickly and they stay in the red or it takes them a very long time to, to get out of owing a bunch of people money. It, it, it was a passion that then turned into, man, I can do something that people like to then I can actually possibly make a living on it. That's kind of what we've done. Um, it didn't work out necessarily in that that order, but, uh, but, uh, it's been really fun. Um, it, it, I would recommend that if people really want to do it, whether they come here or somewhere else, go try it before you just decide to dump a lot of money into animals and equipment and everything else. Come try it for a week or a month or six and see what you really think (laughs) when you're waking up and it's 30 degrees outside and raining and you have to go help a mama pull babies or milk or uh an animal gets their head stuck in a in a hay feeder or or um anything else like that uh i would i would recommend people try come try it first before they just decide to jump head head first into it well nate Thank you for your time today. We do appreciate it because we know you are a busy man. And where can we find some information about your products? Where can we order them? Uh, where can we learn more all about the uh, the the wonderful world of uh, cheese making in Louisiana? Well, you can follow us on the internet. We are at Circle M Farms LA. Um, and I think there's a dot com there somewhere. Um, or you can find us on Facebook. Uh, Circle M Farms on Facebook or Southern Maids Dairies. I think it's I think it's paired together uh, on Facebook, and we are on Instagram as well under Southern Maids Dairy as well. And uh, I sure do appreciate the opportunity that y'all have given me to uh, spout off about our uh, about our little slice of heaven that we have down here. Nate, I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. Well, I, I appreciate you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I would love an excuse to come back to Louisiana. Certainly. As always, uh, thank you for joining us to our listeners on Goat Gab. And um, you can follow us on Facebook at Goat Gab. You can um, certainly listen to us from Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you find us. Please give us some feedback on what you like or what you don't like. Um, Like, you know, give us a like if you feel so inclined. Uh, We really do appreciate your friendship and um, we are thankful for you on this Thanksgiving week as we wrap that up. So thank you for being part of us.